Hello and welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is Journeys from the Past. My name is Andy Davis. The purpose of these podcasts is to inspire listeners to courageous sacrificial actions, to make progress in the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of evangelism and missions, by learning the stories of our heroic brothers and sisters from the past. So today we're going to be talking about Ulrich Zwingli. And I want to begin by effectively asking who in the world is Ulrich Zwingli and why should we care about him? A few years ago, I was invited to participate with a group of pastors in a discussion at a seminary about the future of the Master of Divinity degree. Now, the Master of Divinity degree is the basic degree preparing a man for pastoral ministry. The leaders of the seminary were seeking to streamline the degree reduce the number of credits required, make it easier to get, since so many of the students, they argued, were well into their married lives and had families to support. The idea was the quicker they could turn around the degree, the better. I personally did not think this was wise, since it seemed like the mentality was, how little can we require and still award the MDiv degree? I doubted that law schools were seeking to reduce their requirements, asking how little can we require and still prepare a lawyer, or medical schools asking how little can we require and still prepare a doctor. At any rate, the discussion went on and became very pragmatic, as the pastors involved in this panel discussion were sticking to what works, to what's necessary, what's beneficial, what's practical for pastoral ministry. And as they were getting rid of this and getting rid of that from the MDiv, uh, one of the most suspect areas for all of them, it seemed, was church history. Some, it seemed, were willing to consider getting rid of church history altogether. And one of them said, why should I care about Ulrich Zwingli? How can he help my people to live their lives? I'll never forget that. The way he said Ulrich Zwingli, it was almost like his name was a joke. And to him, it should be obvious to all of us how useless it was for busy, high-tech, 21st century people to learn anything about him at all. Well, the fact of the matter is, church history is of immeasurable value to the present-day Christian. It humbles us. It teaches us how much other people had to suffer and fight to deliver the gospel intact to the next generation. It helps us be vigilant for doctrinal error in our time. Church history shows us the danger of sin. It shows us the need for holiness in the people of God. The lessons are broad and deep. It also cuts off arrogance, thinking that wisdom originated with us and will die with us. We need to realize we're part of an unfolding story. Studying the heroes of the faith helps in all these respects, and Ulrich Zwingli was a true hero of the faith. He was a reformer who lived in Switzerland in a city called Zurich in the 16th century. He boldly preached the pure word of God. He was a sequential expositor. He preached line by line, week after week, from the pulpit, simple, clear expositions of biblical passages. He followed the simple principle that the Christian church should employ nothing in its worship or its life that was not clearly taught and exemplified in the New Testament. In this way, Zwingli led the church of his city out of the darkness of medieval Roman Catholicism into a purer, more biblical pattern of doctrine and life. 
Zwingli lived and ministered at basically the same time as Martin Luther, although he was not as famous as Luther. I'm sure you've heard of Martin Luther, but many of you may have not heard of Ulrich Zwingli. And I believe that a study of Zwingli's life will inspire you in the power of God's word preached and faithfully obeyed. So I want to begin by talking about the origination of the Reformation in Switzerland, where it all began. Over the door of the great Minster Church in Zurich, there is an inscription which says, The Reformation of Huldrych Zwingli began here on January 1st, 1519. Huldrych is another pronunciation of Ulrich. I want you to envision what it would have been like to have been there that day for that service. Picture it in your mind's eye. Zwingli was the priest of that significant Great Minster Parish Church. The Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Ages was characterized by an almost complete ignorance of the Bible, by the peasants and merchants that attended Mass, and even usually by the priests themselves. The service was made up of rituals that had been handed down from generation to generation, rituals that surrounded the Lord's Supper, what they considered the sacrifice of the Mass, and various other ceremonies, none of which were ever explained to the people, and none of which were in the language of the people. Everything was in Latin. And the knowledge of the Word of God by the people, as I mentioned, and even by the priests, was starkly lacking. How much more all of the people who came in from the fields, who are simple peasants, not like the priests, they were not educated, who knew almost nothing of Scripture at all. They were truly a people walking in darkness. But on January 1st, 1519, everything changed for the people of Zurich. The people who attended the service that day were stunned. Their priest, Ulrich Zwingli, announced that he would be dispensing with the usual practice of preaching a simple canned homily, a miniature sermon, from the assigned lectionary. Instead, he would begin preaching directly from the Greek New Testament, starting at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, the very start of the New Testament, with the very first verse, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The people were electrified by it. They'd never heard anything like this before. As a matter of fact, one ardent young man in the congregation was named Thomas Platter. He was a humanist student who was excited by the Renaissance of classical learning going on in Europe. And this young man's thirst for classical knowledge had been so great that he had spent his days earning a meager living as a manual laborer and then spent his nights up late studying the ancient languages of Greek and Latin so he could read the classics. He had put sand between his teeth and ground it to keep himself awake. That's how dedicated he was to learning classical texts. But now he was drinking at the true fountain of wisdom, the Bible, directly through the careful, accurate preaching of Ulrich Zwingli. The Bible had for centuries been hidden from the people. Now it was being revealed, and Thomas Platter declared that he felt he was being pulled up out of a dark hole by the hair of his head. Zwingli proceeded systematically, verse after verse in Matthew, week after week, directly from the Greek New Testament. The people were learning who Jesus Christ really was. The miracles that he did, the teachings he spoke, the Sermon on the Mount, the parables. They saw his gentleness in dealing with broken-hearted sinners, 
his power in stilling the storm, his skill in healing every kind of disease and sickness among the people. They saw him dealing with his enemies, the Jewish leaders, and how Jesus refuted their false doctrines with clear teaching. They thrilled to the account of Jesus' death on the cross and of his powerful resurrection from the dead. The vagueness and faulty mythology of medieval Roman Catholicism, of their theology, was being driven back like a shadow retreating before the rising sun of truth. When Zwingli finished the Gospel of Matthew, he moved on to the book of Acts. And he went line by line, verse by verse, through the 28 chapters of Acts. So with the theology of the person and work of Christ firmly established by their work in Matthew, now the people would learn what the early church really looked like. And they would realize how completely different was that early church from the mythology and idolatry of their practices in their Roman Catholic Church. After Acts came the epistles to Timothy, called the pastoral epistles, and then Galatians, about freedom in Christ through the gospel, and then first and second Peter. Zwingli just faithfully expounded and applied text after text of Scripture, until by 1525 he had worked his way through the entire New Testament. This was the foundation of the Reformation of Zurich in Switzerland. So, who was this man, Ulrich Zwingli, and how did God prepare him for this amazing work? Zwingli was born on January 1st, 1484, in the Toggenberg village of Wildhaus, in a lonely shepherd's cottage high in the Alps of Switzerland. His village was the highest in the valley, surrounded by lush alpine meadows, and impressive snow-capped alpine peaks. Most of the people in that region were shepherds. Zwingli was trained in the Catholic faith by pious parents and in the new humanistic learning by his scholarly uncle. Humanism was the abiding philosophy of the Renaissance. It taught scholars to clear away myths and legends and accretions on the things they were learning and get back to the truth taught by the great minds of the past, the classics from Greece and Rome. The cry of humanism was ad fontes, which is Latin for go back to the fountains, back to the fountains, to the fountainhead. It advocated learning Greek and Latin so students could read the classics for themselves. Zwingli was trained in this passion for humanism getting back to the sources. Throughout his formative years, in 1498, he entered a college in Bern, where he studied under Heinrich Wolfen, a man reputed to be the best classical scholar and Latin poet in Switzerland. From 1500 to 1502, he studied in Vienna and was further trained in classical learning. He studied scholastic philosophy, astronomy, and physics, but mostly the ancient classics. He was an excellent musician playing lute, harp, violin, flute, and dulcimer with a high level of skill. By 1506, Zwingli was ordained to the priesthood, and he served a local parish in Glarus as a priest from 1506 to 1516. He began to teach himself the, uh, the Greek language, and he became quite proficient at it. He loved classical Greek and Roman philosophers, poets, and orators, such as Homer, Livy, Caesar, Pliny, Cicero, Plutarch, and others. He was basically a classical scholar, a bookworm, an academic, who loved immersing himself in the ancient learning. 
But at this time, an event occurred of earth-shaking significance, not just in Zwingli's life, but in the history of the world. On March 1, 1516, the Dutch humanist scholar Erasmus published a critical edition of the Greek New Testament, which he had compiled from manuscripts in various monasteries, many of which had recently been brought to Western Europe by Greek monks who were fleeing from the Turks, who were ascendant militarily at that time. It's amazing how God's providence orchestrates these things. The Turkish rise, uh, Islamic rise militarily, brought a rise of knowledge of biblical truth to Europe. It's really quite remarkable. Erasmus' work co uh, collated the many Greek manuscripts together and then evaluated them. Erasmus's Greek New Testament would then become the basi basis of Luther's translation of the Bible into German, William Tyndale's translation of the Bible into English, and many other such works that spurred on the Reformation. For his part, Ulrich Zwingli was electrified by the Greek New Testament. He began a, a personal relationship with Erasmus and was shaped by him, at least in the early stages of his ministry. At that time, the Bible being used in Western Europe was the Latin Vulgate, translated many centuries before that by Jerome. It had significant flaws to it. For example, simply, it was a translation. It's, anytime you're dealing with translation, it's imperfect. And it was a translation into Latin. But there were specific uh, details that were a problem. For example, in Matthew 3, 2, it says, you know, in our English, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, the Latin Vulgate said, penitum agate, literally, do penance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which meant for those people in medieval Catholicism doing certain actions the priest told you to do in the sacrament of penance. Go do something to show your penitence. But Erasmus saw that the word in the Greek actually had to do with a change of mind, an essential transformation of character, a change of heart from which all the other actions would flow. The difference between the two is almost immeasurable. And it led to the Reformation insight of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, not by doing sacraments and works, but by trusting in Christ. For a classically trained scholar-priest like Zwingli, it was awesome to have the Greek text of the New Testament right there in front of him to study and to preach from. The clarity and freshness of perspective unleashed the Reformation in Switzerland. Unlike Luther, however, Ulrich Zwingli's conversion was a gradual intellectual process of study, of reflection, of meditation and prayer, not a soul-rending, severe spiritual crisis like Luther went through in the monastery. At this point, Zwingli was a humanist scholar first, and perhaps you could argue a Swiss patriot second. We'll talk more about that in a minute. As a priest and military chaplain, he accompanied Swiss troops as they fought as mercenaries in foreign wars, mostly in Italy for the Pope against his bitter enemy, the King of France. Zwingli expressed tremendous admiration for the courage and skill of his Swiss countrymen on the battlefield, but he was heartbroken that so many of them died in the battles and he had to break the news to their widows. Zwingli's patriotism and his willingness to take up arms to defend the truth would, would be a significant factor in his life and would eventually lead to his death on a battlefield. We'll get to all that later. For now, we just need to understand where Zwingli was at in his development, in his intellectual and spiritual transformation, and what effect all that had on his parish in Zurich. So unlike Luther, who was just racked with a sense of guilt and anguish 
over his soul's state and the future and would he be condemned to hell. Uh, Zwingli was just working through the documents and trying to understand the teachings therein was being gradually changed by it. Very different approach. Um, Richard Baxter, the Puritan pastor, said, God breaketh not all men alike. Not everyone gets converted the same way. And Luther was very different than Zwingli in that regard. Zwingli continued to study the scriptures and little by little the light of the gospel of truth dawned in his soul. In the early stages, Zwingli was more of a humanist and a disciple of Erasmus than he was a priest even of the Roman Catholic Church. He had a parsonage in which the bottom floor of the house was devoted to the cure of souls, and the top floor was a library filled with 350 books covering geography, geometry, philosophy, religion, and many ancient classics. But the study that was increasingly capturing his soul was the Greek New Testament and the insights that rose in his mind. The clear difference between the Gospel of Christ, as written in the pages of the New Testament, and the medieval Roman Catholic Church. Zwingli was so electrified by the Greek New Testament that he memorized all the epistles of Paul in the original Greek language. As he poured out those insights in his sermons, his increasingly radical commitment to clear away anything in the church that was not taught in the New Testament became clearer and clearer to his people. This basic commitment to the Bible above all human traditions was the essence of humanism applied to Christianity, getting back to the roots of the fountainhood, fountainhead, applied to something infinitely more important than the Greek and Latin classics. It was applied to the timeless Word of God and then applied to the living church of Jesus Christ. Here was lived out the central Protestant Reformation principle of sola scriptura, by scripture alone is everything decided in the life of the church. Scripture must take precedent over human traditions. Massive changes followed the Swiss Reformation there in Zurich. So let's talk about how that happened. And as we do, we have to set it in the context of what was going on in Germany with Martin Luther. Of course, by that time that Ulrich Zwingli was preaching verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew, January 1st, 1519, Martin Luther had already begun his work of reformation in Germany. Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg All Saints Church on October 31st, 1517. So that was you know, about a year and a half before that. The escalating crisis between Luther and the Roman Catholic Church, led by Pope Leo X, was mostly waged in the form of academic writings and disputations over doctrinal truth. Luther's writings were spread widely over Germany, just north of Switzerland. Zwingli read what Luther wrote and found himself in essential agreement with the central tenets of Luther's positions. Now, Zwingli would later be very clear he denied that he got his ideas from Luther. Rather, they came from direct reading of the Greek New Testament. But Zwingli did say that what he got from Luther was the courage to say boldly what he increasingly was believing. Luther appeared to Zwingli as a kind of Hercules, a, a powerful defender of the faith. Therefore, Zwingli gave himself to disseminating Luther's writings. He actually sent men with printed tracts carried in backpacks through the mountain passes and lush valleys to every city and village and tiny hamlet and congregation, even every house in Switzerland. Zwingli agreed with Luther on the central doctrine of justification by faith alone. The forgiveness of our sins can never be by religious works, but only through faith in Christ. 
like Luther, Zwingli denied the authority of popes and councils, relying solely on the word of God. Like Luther, Zwingli denied the merits of the saints, good deeds stored up in some treasury box in heaven that the pope could dispense by indulgences. Like Luther, Zwingli repudiated monasticism and clerical celibacy. He agreed with simplifying the sacraments from 7 to 2 and the simplifying of the liturgy for public worship to be written in the common language of the people so they could actually understand what was going on. However, Zwingli had some important differences from Luther. We'll discuss the most important, the Lord's Supper, in a few moments. Well, how did the word transform Zurich? As Zwingli continued preaching clearly from the New Testament, verse after verse, he was upholding a clear principle for the church. Only those things clearly taught in the New Testament must be part of our church life. The superstitions and human traditions of Roman Catholicism had to be swept away before the principle of sola scriptura, by scripture alone. In this way, Zwingli was bolder and more consistent than Luther. Sola meant alone, nothing other than scripture. Luther allowed a lot more traditions into Lutheranism than Zwingli did into the Reformed Church of Zurich. Soon, the people of Zurich, led boldly by Zwingli, began to focus attention on especially three Roman Catholic practices that had no warrant in Scripture. The veneration of images, which were artistic statues up on the walls of churches, statues of Jesus or Mary or some individual in, in biblical history, statues. These images were venerated, worshipped, fasting during Lent, and clerical celibacy. Luther considered these issues somewhat superficial. He strongly opposed the destruction of images in the churches. Effectively, Luther said, take care of the idols in the heart and the idols on the walls will take care of themselves. Amazingly, the first of these three issues to be addressed boldly in Zurich was the practice of abstaining from meat during Lent. A Swiss printer named Christopher Froschauer uh, declared that he needed to eat meat to have enough strength to finish printing the New Testament in the Swiss-German dialect by Easter. He was getting weakened by all the fasting and he needed strength to do that work for God. According to the official records of the case, the trial, a group of men, including Zwingli, were at the printer's house. The printer brought out two dried sausages, which he then cut up into pieces and everyone but Zwingli ate some. Though Zwingli abstained at that time, he publicly defended these men in their eating of the sausages. And why? Because abstaining from meat during something called Lent is nowhere taught in the New Testament. So why should we be bound to do it? The boldness kept coming. And there was fighting in the streets of Zurich between those who were ardent for these changes and others who were not ready to make them yet. Ardent disciples of Zwingli tore down statues from the walls of churches and burned them priests began to marry. All of these cases were referred to the Bishop of Constance, who in turn worked with the Zurich Town Council. Because of these kinds of politics, the Pope was very reticent to intervene in Switzerland. As it turns out, the Pope's own bodyguards were the renowned Swiss Guard. It's still that way to this very day. Uh, they were known to be fierce and powerful in battle. The Pope did not, not, did not want to lose their allegiance, their loyalty, so he kept out of the fray in Zurich, stayed out of it. Eventually, all these issues of reform came to a head in 1523 in three great disputations or public debates conducted in Zurich. It wasn't just the eating of meat during Lent 
and images and clerical celibacy. Over everything was the mass itself, the centerpiece of the Roman Catholic system. All, also, they discussed the use of organs, pipe organs, in the church service. Uh, Zwingli and his cohorts came to these disputations carrying nothing but the scripture. Throughout the debate, Zwingli consistently referred to nothing but scripture. At one point, when the Roman Catholic debater, a man named Fabri, spoke of the intercession of the saints for us in heaven, Zwingli broke in, demanded to know chapter and verse. What scripture taught the intercession of the saints in heaven for the living on earth? Where did you get that? Chapter and verse. Zwingli's knowledge of the Bible and his clear skill in speaking as well as his boldness, won the debate hands down. The town council ruled in favor of Zwingli, and Zurich was well on its way to what some scholars have called a bibliocracy, a bibliocracy, a, a democracy or a, or a rule of the people run by the Bible. Like a democracy, the people heard and voted and made, made decisions. Uh, but they sought to do everything by scripture alone. Others have called it a theocracy in Zurich. And the people of Zurich saw themselves as the elective God chosen to do this reforming work. Over the following year, two more disputations, public debates occurred. And though violent destruction of icons was ruled against, every other aspect of the reform went ahead, including priests getting married and the mass as a sacrifice of the body and blood of Christ rejected as blasphemous. Worship was stripped down and simplified. The singing of psalms alone, the church buildings stripped of all artwork, the simple praying and preaching of the word in the language of the common people, the Lord's Supper being a simple memorial of bread and wine and a remembrance of Jesus and his life and death. Zwingli was really a true predecessor of the Puritans in their simple uh, aesthetic in public worship in all of these efforts. Yet we should note how completely married together were the church and the state in Zurich. The town council worked with the pastor Zwingli and openly sought to weave Christian truth into every aspect of governmental and public life. However, the concept of ch separation of church and state would soon emerge in a group of even more radical followers in Zurich who became known as the Anabaptists. The Radical Reformation so-called, the Anabaptist, was born under Zwingli's leadership but against his desires and against his consent there in Zurich. By 1525, some of Zwingli's most ardent followers felt that Zwingli himself wasn't radical enough. By the way, the word radical comes from the Latin word radix, which means root, which goes back to the root of everything, back to the root of true Christianity, as seen in the pages of the New Testament alone. That's similar to the ad fontes attitude of going back to the sources. So they were radical. They wanted to go back to the New Testament in every respect. These ardent followers became distressed at the impurity and worldliness they saw in many of the members of the Zurich church and the purity and holy dedication they saw in all the members of the early church in the New Testament. I guess they must not have read the uh, First Corinthians too carefully because there wasn't a lot of purity and, and holiness in those people, but they're probably talking about the church there in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. At any rate, they dedicated themselves with zeal to personal holiness, to putting sin to death in their own lives. They also saw that the early church was made up of only people who lived like that, genuine believers uh, in Christ, 
whereas their church was made up of the entire population of Zurich. And foundational of that was infant baptism. As soon as babies were born, they were baptized into church membership. Uh, they were instantly members of the church at Zurich. And most of those people were not leading conspicuously Christ-following lives. These radical Christians led exemplary Christian lives. They rejected all uh, gluttony, uh, drunkenness, any excessive eating or drinking, all foul language, strife. Uh, they were ca clearly characterized by humility, quietness, honesty, hard work, self-control, patience, meekness, Christian virtues, the fruit of the Spirit. They were trying to live out the Christian life. These ardent disciples of Zwingli saw that the primitive church was constantly persecuted by the government, not in any way united with the state. So these radical reformers wanted their church in Zurich to be made up only of true believers and to be ready to be reviled and hated and attacked and persecuted by the world. To all this, Roman Catholics, along with the Lutherans and Zwinglis, would have responded that the early church was persecuted because the government was hostile to Christianity. But once the Emperor Constantine was converted, the state had been become effectively Christian. So why should we expect hostility between church and state to continue? This is after centuries of an ironclad welding of church and state in Christendom in Western Europe. This was the norm everywhere. These radical reformers re replied that the conversion of one man, Constantine, did not Christianize the entire Roman state. The world was still the world, an enemy to genuine faith. Among the key leaders of this radical reformation were Conrad Grebel and Felix Manns. A key moment in the process of reform happened in 1523. Conrad Grebel stood up and asked what was to be done about the Mass. Zwingli said that the council would make that decision. A radical priest named Simon Stumpf stood up and cried out, The decision has already been made by the Spirit of God. In other words, Zwingli wanted to wade and work through the town council. The radical reformers wanted the church to be freed from all government interference, led by the scriptures and by the Spirit of God alone. Frustrated by Zwingli's unwillingness to go further and faster, individual Bible studies sprang up in Zurich as early as 1523. These radical reformers soon repudiated infant baptism, which they saw nowhere taught or exemplified in the New Testament. They saw that in the New Testament, the only people baptized were those who had heard and believed the gospel message. So they petitioned the town council and sought to work with Zwingli, but their views did not win the day. Almost no one in Christendom at that time could envision a society in which church and state functioned in entirely separate domains. No one could see how that could even work. So in January 1525, the town council ruled that any parents who refused to have their infants baptized would be expelled from Zurich. Conrad Grebel uh, had a daughter who had just been born, and he knew that he could not baptize her in good conscience. At a meeting with other radical reformers on January 21, 1525, leader George Blaurock stood up and begged Conrad Grable to baptize him into the Christian faith based upon his faith and knowledge of the gospel. Grable did, and then Blaurock baptized him and all the others. They came to be known as Anabaptists, meaning rebaptizers, but they would have considered this an insult. They did not consider the infant baptism they had received in medieval Catholicism to be anything at all, and so they were just baptizers or Baptists. Within a short amount of time, the town council, with Ulrich Zwingli's full blessing, pronounced the death penalty 
on Felix Manns, who was drowned in the lake. This would be a regular pattern that Anabaptists tended to be executed by drowning. It's kind of like they want water, we'll give it to them. This began the savage persecution of Anabaptists from that time forward. Now, there's so many more things we could teach about Zwingli's life, but we've got to fast forward now to the end of his life, his disputation with Luther over the Lord's Supper, and then his death on the battlefield. The little canton of Zurich, canton was the, the divisions, like we have states, United States of America, uh, theirs were cantons, so it was a geographical division. The little canton, or district of Zurich, was surrounded by other Swiss cantons that were not ready to go as far in reform as Zwingli. Some of those cantons did declare for the Protestant Reformation, however. But to the south of uh, south region of Switzerland, in the forest regions, the cantons stayed committed to Roman Catholicism. There started to be friction and even violence between the Protestant and Catholic Swiss cantons, especially in the border areas. The Catholics caught and executed an image breaker from Zurich, burning him at the stake. The Protestants responded by capturing and executing a Catholic persecutor. It seemed clear to the Roman Catholics that war was coming, so they made a military alliance with the traditional enemy of the Swiss, the House of Habsburg. Soon the Protestant soldiers were on the march against this Catholic alliance. At the early stages, uh, the Protestant and Catholics, Protestants and Catholics were able in Switzerland to stave off open war. They agreed to the first peace of Capel in 1529, but it really solved nothing. The Catholics still persecuted the Protestants they found in their cantons, and if the Swiss Catholics were going to make an alliance with the Habsburgs, then the Swiss Protestants would turn to the German Lutherans for military assistance. For this reason, Luther and Zwingli decided to meet at Marburg in the fall of 1529, the famous colloquy at Marburg. Both sides had intense misgivings about the other, however. Although they agreed about an overwhelming number of Protestant doctrines, they staunchly disagreed about the Lord's Supper. Luther had an overwhelming reverence for the Lord's Supper. He avidly believed in and taught the doctrine of real presence, that the bread and wine were in fact the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. He went so far as to kneel before the elements and show them open worship as he would have if he had been the actual physical presence of our Lord, which he believed he was. He rejected the concept of transubstantiation that medieval Catholicism taught, the strange mingling of Christian theology with Aristotelian philosophy. He rejected that, but he used a different concept called consubstantiation to teach about the same thing, real presence. The body of Christ is actually in, with, and under the physical bread and wine. Zwingli's view, for his part, has been called the bare memorial view. That's a little unfair because he had a more spiritual view than this, but still the idea is that the Lord's Supper is, is really just a reminder to all Christians of the death of Christ and nothing more. Zwingli absolutely denied real presence and felt Jesus' words, this is my body and this is my blood, represent similar metaphors to Jesus saying, I am the vine and I am the door for the sheep. Despite intense debate and wrangling, these two titans of the Reformation could not agree. It's always been amazing to me that the Lord's Supper, the meal that was established by Christ to, do, to unite all Christians, was one of the most divisive of issues within the Reformation uh, movement. Well, let's talk now about the final drama of Zwingli's life. After the failure at the Colloquy of Marburg, the military situation for the Protestant cantons in Switzerland was fairly bleak. The military alliance with the German Lutherans obviously did not occur and the Catholic cantons had superior numbers and military strength. 
The Protestant cantons imposed economic sanctions on the Catholics, depriving them of wheat, salt, and wine, so the Catholics took to the field of battle. 8,000 Catholic troops moved on Zurich, who were only able at that point to muster 1,500 troops to meet them. This small detachment courageously went out to hold the passes until some other men could arrive from other Protestant cantons. Zwingli went out with them, armed for battle not just as a chaplain, but really as a soldier. He wore armor and carried a sharp two-headed axe. This was the second battle of Capel, and it resulted in the deaths of 500 men of Zurich, including their pastor, Ulrich Zwingli. The Roman Catholics treated him as a traitor and a heretic, and his body was quartered by an executioner and burned, and his ashes mingled with manure so that they could not be used as a relic be ironic if they were, because Zwingli was so ardently against that kind of thing anyway. Sadly, the union of church and state in Switzerland produced a divided country. It led to Zwingli's death, and it also produced a divided Switzerland, Protestant versus Catholic. And it gave a clear foretaste of the bloody future of Europe, shredded by over a century of religious wars between Protestants and Catholics. Ironically, in the end, the Anabaptist vision of separation of church and state would become the norm all over the world, where state-sponsored Christian denominations were ultimately rejected and are really found nowhere in the world now. All right, let's talk briefly about some timeless lessons from Zwingli's life. First, the transforming power of the Word of God clearly and simply preached. I myself am a sequential expositor as a preacher. I take books of the Bible and just move through them like Ulrich Zwingli did. Therefore, Ulrich Zwingli is one of my heroes and mentors in the strategy of handling the scripture from the pulpit. It would be good for all of you who listen to this podcast to realize the power of the Word of God unleashed on a local church, line after line, chapter after chapter, book after book. There's nothing wrong with topical preaching. It can be very effective if it is based on the Bible. However, as an overall long-term pulpit strategy, I definitely commend sequential exposition of Scripture. Behind this, of course, is the Protestant vision of sola scriptura, that Scripture alone should decide what goes on in the life of a church of the Church of Jesus Christ. Secondly is the slogan, Be Bold for the Glory of God. His key slogan was, Do something bold for God's sake. Isn't that a great slogan? Do something bold for God's, for God's sake. The kingdom of heaven is advanced by people who are willing to risk much for His glory. People willing to take risks, willing to suffer, to lead out, to sail into uncharted waters. Zwingli was a hero in that respect. He was a hero of the faith. He's willing to question all the traditions and superstitions of the medieval Catholic Church and evaluate them by the Word of God. So, I want to ask you, dear listener, what bold pattern of service is God calling you to? And then thirdly, God uses gifted but flawed people. Zwingli was a brilliant man. He was courageous, he was articulate, he was a bold leader. But he was also flawed, especially shown by his treatment of the Anabaptists. It turns out they were right. He should have been more humbly willing to listen to them and go further, even further, in his reformation of the church when it came to baptism and separation of church and state, things like that, a believer's church. So, as we conclude today, I want you to go into your week knowing that your loving Heavenly Father holds your life and all your ways in His hands. Nothing can happen to you apart from His will. He orchestrates the rise and fall of mighty empires and the death of sparrows that no one ever sees. 
He has numbered the very hairs of your head, and all the days ordained for you are written in his book before one of them came to be. And he has gone ahead of you to prepare a specific set of good works for you to walk in, good works that are essential to his eternal kingdom. Just as your brothers and sisters in Christ live for his glory in their day, do the same in yours, by the power of his Spirit, for the glory of his Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.